Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Amy Freed and Doug Harris, who are the authors of a new book, At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponized Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. This was published in 2021 by Columbia University Press, and it is both a historical and meta-analysis of how distrust has been employed, used strategically, um, particularly by uh, the Republicans, but not exclusively. Um, And I'm going to ask Amy and Doug to tell us a little bit about that as we talk about their excellent new book. Um, First, I'd like to welcome them to the New Books Network and to ask them to tell me a little bit about themselves and how you came to this project together. Hi, Amy. Hi, Doug. Well, hi, Lily. Uh, Amy here. And and really, the main story is that Doug and I overlapped for a year when we were both at Colgate University before we both left and went other places, uh, made careers other places. And we originally, uh, many years ago, wrote a paper for a a conference at University, University of Nebraska that was focused on trust and distrust in government which um, that, you know, that paper ended up in an edited volume. And then many years later, we revisited it uh, for a paper in the forum about the Tea Party and distrust. And then Doug quite brilliantly said to me, gee, maybe this should be a book. And I said, that is just the best idea. So then we went really to work on it. Um, and, you know, started pulling in lots of other research and doing a, a more archival trips. And, I, you know, so really, uh, you know, and then also, also I, I'll, I'll let Doug speak for himself in terms of his own background. But my interest has I've written a lot of different things. I've kind of varied a bit, but um, I consider my main focus to be on the history and political uses of public opinion. So um, it came really out of out of that interest and also a little bit of an interest in health policy. 
Um, but we're, we're, we have somewhat varied interests, really. Doug? Yeah, I think that that was an important um, part of the early collaboration, which was Amy was focused on public opinion and the politics of public opinion. And um, I was focused on congressional rhetoric and uh, the, the use of media by congressional leaders. At, at the time, it was Newt Gingrich. And um, this was really one of those places where Amy's uh, uh, interests and my interests overlapped. And we really saw that there was um, some, uh, some uh, connect between what she was studying and the politics of public opinion and what I was studying. And then, you know, I think that early paper that we wrote about the Gingrich Revolution and uh, the cultivation of distrust in government um, during during that time um, was uh, in some ways sort of a cautionary tale. I think the tone of that first piece was if if we continue down this road, this could be really bad. Uh, and um, one of the reasons that we continued in this research was that uh, the rhetoric of American politics did continue down this road, the, from the Tea Party to Trump, um, the, the anti-government rhetoric and the anti-government strategy um, within uh, conservative circles and the National Republican Party um, became more vehement, vehement and uh, uh, ultimately more dangerous. And and I know that you say this, I think, in the acknowledgments that you had sort of hoped that this book wouldn't need to be written. Um, but it sounds to me like it needed to be written. And given, you know, my reading of it, there's a, a lot in it that that you sort of unearth and connect um, in terms of understanding this role of rhetoric from politicians in particular um, and in the last 50 years, politicians on the right and a sort of embedded strain of distrust in government that has always been with us. So I'd like to ask you, since this is also sort of how you start out the book, with um, at least giving a little bit of an overview of that historical strain that is present in the United States. Sure, I, I'll, I'll take that. Um, I think that... Uh... One of the things that when we teach American politics, we realize is that uh, the, the, the concerns about the large state as a threat to individual freedom, the concerns about centralization of power and the distance from, uh, from the center of government to, uh, um, to throughout the country more generally, um, has always been a concern in American national politics and that that concern continues to be revisited, that there is this cultural strain of suspicion of government that predates the American founding and resurges like most cultural strains in American politics resurge uh, at various points. And uh, one way to look at the trajectory of American political development is to think of it as um, a, a perpetual struggle between centralizers and decentralizers and um, those that seek to use the state um, seek uh, to build and cultivate trust uh, in government and in state capacity and state effectiveness. Uh, and those that seek to uh, undermine those efforts have distrust 
uh, as as a ready a ready weapon um, because it is built into I think American the American fabric of uh, of political thought. And you know, I I guess uh, I would add add to that this you know all of that's absolutely so that like we are seeing a trajectory of, even though these things wax and wane in the decades that we're covering, there's a movement from what could be called maybe more reasonable skepticism. I mean, skepticism towards government is perfectly appropriate. It's it's in fact I would say a democratic virtue to, you know, want to hold uh, those in power accountable. Uh, So a movement from skepticism to really intense distrust to what we've seen really recently, which is this delegitimization of government, whether that's, you know, with the elections seen, you know, really strongly in the January 6th insurrection, or when it comes to even things like public health officials and what they have to say with some of the you know, responses to vaccines and other public health officials. Um, And with, you know, and with all that makes it, uh, uh, you know, just a move away from like, we want to govern, (laughs) but do it with smaller government to being almost, you know, completely uninterested in governing, just really wanting to stop things, Um, you know, really to just say, no, let's not do anything. So like a you know, like when we were working on the Reagan chapter, obviously Reagan was seen as, you know, a very strong father of modern conservatism. On the other hand, he was a governor of California before he was president. And even as president, he he did not, you know, try to dismantle the state or or use the same you know, or or use the same sign, really, really negative language towards opponents that you start to see later on, from really from Gingrich on. And and so in talking about this idea of distrust in government, as you say, there's like there's all this idea of healthy skepticism and paying attention to what our elected representatives are doing, making sure that they're not corrupt. That's one thing, but this this sort of turn to distrust. Um, for a long time, I was looking at this as a kind of anger that's also directed at the government. And you talk about this a bit in the book as well, that there's a, combust- a combustion that happens with regard to the distrust and the anger. Can you sort of tease out and define a little bit what we're talking about with regard to this idea of distrust um, and how it's sort of woven now into this polarized um, sort of dynamic. Okay, I'll, I'll take a little bit of a you know uh, an effort at this, and I'm sure Doug will jump in as well. But um, I mean, really, what we're talking about is how distrust is weaponized. That's the term that we use. It's part of our subtitle, and and we introduce it very early on. So um, the sort of maybe like baseline or natural distrust, or you know certainly valid levels of distrust are going to be out there, but there's a certain cultivation and encouragement of it so that it can be used as a political weapon. And we, you know, analytically draw that out in four different ways, running through all the different case studies. So distrust being used to try to win elections, to try to build and maintain political organizations, to wage policy battles, and then also in intra, 
institutional struggles. So distrust is being cultivated and encouraged in those ways. Now that there's that doesn't mean that it's uh, just simply created out of whole cloth by elites, even though our emphasis is on elites and what leaders are doing, because, um, you know, certainly there's some unhappiness in the public that's that's out there. But um, we used a metaphor and the very first thing that we wrote on distrust that I think was a wonderful metaphor, <laughs> which was a, um, a bullfighter. This is the, we had this little Hemingway epigraph uh, where Hemingway was talking about a bullfighter waving the red cape. And uh, but the problem with that, you know, you wave the red cape to, to excite the bull, to get the bull that already has this sort of unruly temperament <laughs> to charge. Um, but then it can also get turned on them. So one of the things that we say is that this distrust and what comes out of cultivating it and weaponizing it can sometimes turn against those who who try to, you know, encourage it or have it go in directions they, they're not really happy with. And, you know, for example, certain members of the Republican establishment who themselves became, you know, the, the subject or well, rather the object of that um, lost office, or just were not particularly happy with the way, with the way that it went. So, you know, we're not saying that there's not real distrust out there in the public, but it's an, in, there's a, there's a relationship between public distrust and then it being cultivated and weaponized, focused in all these various ways. Doug, would you like to add to that? Sure. I, I think this is one of the places where Amy's understanding of the politics of public opinion really uh, feeds into this because uh, with the with the increased use of polling and focus group technologies, uh, the Republicans were able to uh, identify distrust already uh, existing in public opinion, and then figure out uh, uh, as as Frank Luntz would say, words that work, uh, and as Newt Gingrich would try to teach Republicans, the words that would would really resonate with an angry public. And then they would use those terms and uh, as, as a way of um, ginning up that uh, that that uh, public anti-government sentiment, um, only to achieve first to achieve those benefits that that Amy outlined, but uh, then um, they're they're apt to lose control of it. So uh, and and then they they get this public very angry and the public becomes very anti-government, anti-establishment, and then that get, gets revisited on some of these leaders. So you could see the careers of Eric Cantor or Paul Ryan, um, where they had ginned up some of that uh, anti-government, uh, anti-Washington sentiment. Uh, then it it consumes them. And one wonders if this is, this is Kevin McCarthy's future. Uh, one wonders if this is, uh, this is the future of a, a number of Republicans who have used that anti-government sentiment, um, and, and really gotten the public good and angry, uh, at Washington, how much of that is going to be revisited on them? Um, because, uh, I think the, the combustibility of it is, uh, once you, once you start that fire, it's really hard to put it out. And, and so the, the aim of the book and the, the thesis of the book also is that conservatives weaponized it. Um, so this is not a, you know, each side did the same thing and they're both using, 
um, this trust in government or they're both using sort of incendiary rhetoric in the same ways, but that there's a, a narrative that you're sort of tracking, um, as you note, from Goldwater forward. Um, and so it's not the immediate post-war period, but it's kind of after the Eisenhower administration um, that starts to make use of these kind of ret- rhetorical moves um, to kind of readjust the Republican Party. This is also when we're starting to see um, the South, what's going on in the South, and of course, the famous Southern strategy. So can you talk also about why the Republican Party has kind of made more use of this than the, say, the Democratic Party in the last 50 years? Yeah, I, I think that part of what is at work here is um, that uh for uh, for a variety of reasons, the state has become uh, the principal tool of um, of Democrats, uh, especially the domestic policy state, has become the principal tool of Democrats. And where uh, the the democratic ideology and policy program has relied on the state, it, this casts the Republicans as the anti state party. And I think we're pretty careful at the at the beginning of the book to identify. Uh, a couple of instances in the past where left uh, left leaning organizations and left leaning political leaders um, would would similarly seek to use distrust that this is not inherently uh, a, a politics associated with with conservatives as opposed to to liberals or progressives, um, but it is um, at this particular point in time uh, the 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 strategy fits. Uh, better with the Republicans' aims and ideology than with the Democrats. But, you know, I, I, I mean, you, you, you said at the beginning that one of the things that we, we had noted in our uh, introduction to the book was that we wish this book hadn't been written. And I think part of that comes from a, 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 a naivete I have about politics, which is I take people at their word and I let them disappoint me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I grew up uh, in in 1980s America sort of hearing that, um, you know, the, the left movements of the 1960s were undoing society and, and, and breeding distrust in, in a political system. And then I saw that strategy just sort of taken from the left and, and, and employed by the right. And uh, a lot of the disintegration that we're seeing right now in American society is attributable to um, to this political rhetoric and to this political strategy. Um, and I think one of the, one of the negative takeaways from, from our book, one of the, one of the sad, uh, conclusions, um, is that this is because this is a strategy that does help conservatives build organizations, win elections, win institutional battles and beat back policies, uh, that they don't like. Uh, this is a strategy that's likely to stick around, um, despite the fact that it, it does do some pretty serious damage to American government and American society. Yeah, and I, I agree with all of that. And, you know, just sort of uh, the the parties are different point, <laughs> you know, I'd point to, you know, how this fits with, uh, you know, what's been called asymmetric polarization by Norm Ornstein and Thomas Mann and various constitutional uh, law scholars talking about constitutional hardball. That gets that that means you know there are differences in how the parties operate, and Republicans are more likely to engage in and excuse 
constitutional hardball is the polar, you know, with the polarization, it is asymmetric. So there's more extreme and anti-democratic attitudes um, among Republicans. We're certainly seeing that, you know, after the book was written in, in the polling about January 6th, uh, for example, um, and even about the acceptability of violence as a tactic. Um, and I do think it has to do with something that we spoke about very briefly, which is the shift to, uh, you know, re- in terms of regional bases to the party so that the Republican Party, it's obviously not just powerful in the South, but it's powerfully affected by the South. Um, and And so, you know, you have all kinds of racialized messages you have um, in the, you know, with the, with Reagan and beyond the rise of the religious right and the Republican party. So all these different cultural kinds of issues um, you have, you know, in the Goldwater age, other conspiracy theories, the paranoid style, John Birch society. Um, but it, you know, also um, as part of those, a part of that Southern, element, uh, you know, certain certain attitudes about gender, more traditional values, you might say, anti-feminist attitudes. And so, you know, the part of this, of what's going on is this real pushback against modernity in a, in a way, you know, a more pushback against a more multicultural, um, equal kind of vision of society and seeing that as extremely dangerous. And I wouldn't say we talk about that a lot in the book, but I think there are uh, bits and pieces here and there that, you know, we, that, that, that's part of what we're talking about, you know, and that's, it is part of what is going on with why is it the Republican party that's doing this and not the democratic party. And and I wanted to ask you, because you set this up in a really interesting way, because you talk about the the sort of shifts, as you just noted, Amy, with regard to regionalism um, or the regional bases of the parties, and that you you note in the book that this sort of line and rhetoric of distrust, you, uh, distrust united different aspects of the Republican Party to kind of build the organization. Um, and as you note, there are four, these four different components that are used, um, that make use of this distrust. Can you talk about what those planks are or parts of the Republican Party that were sort of woven together in this kind of tapestry of distrust for too much of an extended metaphor there? <laughs> no, it's a great question. I actually want to toss it over to, to Doug because he was, um, I, I think people can't necessarily tell what I wrote and what he wrote, but he kind of originally, as I know, drafted this discussion about the Reagan coalition and, and, and the different parts that were brought together. So I think he should be the one to explain it. Sure. I, I mean, I uh, always think of the, uh, the, the metaphor uh, that the modern Republican Party is is this stool and there are these three legs, the social conservatives, the economic conservatives, the foreign policy conservatives. And one of the real tricks of, of leading a, a multifaceted political coalition, which any party coalition is and must be, uh, is how do you convince the members of the coalition that they have something in common? Um, and... Uh, part of the argument that we make in the book is that distrust is not just a strategy, but it's the principal strategy. 
in part because um, to to lean too heavily on social issues uh, is um, it, in some ways uh, leads to a fracturing of the coalition because some of the economic conservatives, some of the libertarians don't believe in the large state you need to impose what what Republicans might call moral order. Um, and uh, And at the same time, it scares off independent voters that you might need uh, to to get yourself over the top to win a congressional majority or to win the presidency. But it's that strategy of uh, of um, of suspicion in the state uh, and anti-government rhetoric that uh, brings the social conservatives in because they don't like Washington telling them telling them what to do and they don't like these distant elites telling them what to do. The economic conservatives uh, want lower taxes and, and lower regulation. Uh, so as a result, and, and, and some independents can buy into that because there is this long cultural strain of anti-state suspicion. Uh, and as a result, um, this is the strategy that works without scaring off the independents that you need. And the Republicans keep returning to it. And one of the one of the things that I really like about the evidence we were able to put in the book is that this isn't just merely conjecture. We find some of the planning memos where the Republicans are actually saying this is exactly why we're doing this, um, and they're they're using uh, they're using public opinion polls and they're using their focus groups to find out which of these strategies are going to help them uh, maintain unity within the coalition and bring in enough independence to put them over the top for um, for the 94 election or to put them over the top um, when they're trying to push back against Barack Obama and, and throughout. This is the strategy to which they repeatedly return. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, like some of the memos surrounding the rise of uh, Newt Gingrich, you know, him becoming speaker, the whole contract with America, the lead up to that, we have all these, you know, they, they're avoiding being a, being strong, making any, anything about uh, social conservative things. Nothing in the contract with America is a social conservative, you know, plank um, in a, you know, in a very overt kind of way, you know. Um, and it, and so, you know, that it's sort of like that's not, yeah, that's not frighten off certain people by by going heavy on this as a as a national agenda. Um, and, um, but, you know, certainly it was, uh, the underlying idea was that government, the national government, or at least, you know, the Congress plus Clinton (laughs) were, were corrupt. Um, and, um, you know, that, so, and, and that you can't trust, you can't trust the government and it showed up with the healthcare, you know, fight against Clinton's healthcare as well. And. And so if we're looking at this sort of coalition that um, grows up in the post-war period, um, that also is the result of changes with regard to policies that the Democrats are advocating for, like the Great Society and, of course, the Civil Rights um, Acts that transpired during the Johnson administration, you also sort of thread throughout this book the role that race plays with regard to sort of how you can weaponize distrust in government. Can you explain a bit about how the constancy of this issue in the United States um, is 
is something that can be built into this question of distrust in government? Well, a, a lot of it comes down to, you know, how how policies get associated with race and and then also, you know, whether the beneficiaries are seen as deserving. You know, that's there's a, you know, obviously a long literature about about that. Um, but it can be, you know, returned to again and and again, you know, a lot of uh, the, the associations that people have with Social Security is not as a, you know, a policy involving race and desert, you know, that deservingness is not really an issue. Everyone is seen as, as deserving as a universal program, although there's a whole history of social security in which, you know, it, it, a lot of uh, black people did not have access to social security for a while. While certain other policies, um, you know, there's these various racial tropes from Reagan's welfare queen on. Um, and, um, you know, what we, one of the policy areas we, we looked at or policy fights we looked at was over the the crime bill, the Clinton crime bill, which, you know, if you talk to most people today, they think of it as overly punitive and they're criticize it uh, for being, for, you know, maybe uh, promoting racially disparate sentencing outcomes. But really at the time, Republicans attacked it in these racialized ways as being, uh, you know, sort of too, too, um, too liberal and uh, that, you know, there, there was this big, there, there were all of these programs in it that, had, that were supposed to be prevention programs, community-based activities. One of them was this, um, what, what was commonly known at the time as midnight basketball. And there were all of these racialized attacks on it. Um, and then, you know, anybody who would maybe go and play basketball was presented in this kind of frightening way. If you're going to play basketball in in Chicago somewhere, then, you know, you're this, this scary guy with, you know, the, in a, in a kind, in a kind of racialized way. So it, I mean, it keeps happening because it is obviously effective to some extent, they certainly think it's effective. Um, but, you know, I mean, America, I don't think you can understand American politics really at any time without taking account of race. It's just such a important part of our our history and our political development. I mean, there are other things obviously that are important at different points, but it's it's so embedded. Um, and um, you know, when when Republicans were trying to take. Uh, some power, gain some more power in Southern states as, as part of the Southern strategy that obviously was related to the civil rights movement and the voting rights and voting rights movements where, where that's how they, you know, you run against that. You also bring up the social welfare kinds of policies and, uh, you know, move the white voters to, to the Republican party. And I would think most people who, you know, probably every political scientist who studies American politics knows this, but the last time a Democratic presidential candidate won the white vote was 1964. You know, after that, no. Um, so, it, you know, it clearly ha has had impacts. And, and I'll add that, uh, you know, to go back to our, our, our original 
uh, argument um, from early in the book. Um, America has always had this deep suspicion toward the state, but it's been especially so in the South. And that's always been true. And for a while, that would that's what made the Democratic Party, the which had its base in the South, uh, uh, that's what made the Democratic Party the anti-state party uh, for so long. And where 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 those sentiments were strongest, um, the uh, the the it was also the case that uh, some of uh, some of the more um, negative aspects of America's racial politics were were most pronounced. After the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, the Nixon Southern strategy is one in which uh, they're trying to court disaffected white Southerners. And one of the ways that they do that is uh, to um, to push the racial politics that uh, that takes over, even as they are pushing this anti-national government uh, rhetoric. So those two things have been have been fellow travelers in American political development, and um, I think that that is one of the things that's. Uh, that, that still typifies uh, Republican rhetoric on policy. There's this idea that so many Americans have their hands out uh, for, for government support. And part of what that argument is built on is a distrust of, of some people who have their hands out. The truth of the matter is, if you look at the range of American domestic policies, we all have our hand out. Uh, and Amy found this really great instance where uh, – that, that begins our Reagan chapter where uh, Reagan says, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the most dangerous words uh, uh, are, um, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, and this is one of those famous Reagan anti-government sayings. But it was actually uttered in that particular instance at a time when Reagan was announcing that he was providing support uh, to Midwestern farmers. Uh, and, uh, so, so there has always been this, this sleight of hand when it came to, um, the anti-government, uh, commitments of, of modern conservatives. Uh, they've been willing to use the government when it was okay for favored constituencies and then, uh, to complain about the government and the uses of the state when, um, when the beneficiaries were people that they uh, that were not part of their coalition and and that some of them disapproved of. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously those Midwestern farmers are mostly white. And then in the same press conference, he's asked, what about helping the city of Chicago, which is a city that's was, uh, you know, gaining a proportionally black population and had the first their first black mayor, Harold Washington. And he's like, oh, no, no, they're on their own. If they you know, we're going to cut all this support, but they have to they have to raise it themselves. They shouldn't be dependent, which has a kind of, you know, air of, of you know, welfare queenish kind of language about the entire city. Um, I'd also add just that the racialized language, I think, just gets more extreme in, in the period that we're talking about. I mean, obviously, you get very, very overtly racist language earlier in American history, too. But like... Um, You know, there's a a book that came out, I don't know, maybe like 20 years ago, maybe more, Tali Mendelberg's The Race Card. Um, And like her, one of her big arguments then was that you can't, that, that people, you know, people can't use these really overtly, 
racist kinds of images and language anymore. So they have to do it in these more subtle ways because they could turn off all of these more moderate voters and, you know, but then, you know, in recent years, <laughs> you see incredibly overt racist stuff from, you know, the Tea Party uh, images of Obama as a, you know, African king or something with, you know, a bone through his nose. You get all kinds of incredibly overtly, you know, extreme race, race, racist kind of uh, languages and images. And in, in terms of race, you also note that it's used as a weapon that connects the sort of this um, embedded thread of distrust uh, as as a means of sort of moving citizens in particular political directions. But you also talk about the fact that polarization is a part of what's going on as well. And that kind of like with race, polarization is kind of working with this distrust and accentuating it. How is that? Is it the the chicken or the egg? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't think we try to like sort of pull those two things apart in in the same way that some people were not really trying to tell exactly a causal story. But we are saying these things are happening. You know, our prime, the prime issue for us is the weaponization of distrust, the the strategic uses of distrust. And so race is a part of that, a part of that overall process, along with asymmetric polarization, along with, you know, distrust being something that can mobilize uh, people instead of, you know, making them um, feel disempowered um, so, you know, there are a number of different things that, that we tie into this whole broader pattern of distrust. Um, but, you know, so I, I, it's some, you know, so I, I'm, I'm going to sort of uh, step back and say we're not saying one is like causal. It's more they're, they're intersecting and interacting in various ways. And sometimes one gets more intense for, you know, at, and then another one, you know, maybe not quite following, but we're not measuring it in that way either. Cause it's a, you know, where it isn't a, it, it, it's a, it's a very historically oriented study, you know, so we're not trying, and it's not a, we're not quantifying what is the level of strategic uses of distrust at any one time where we're describing it and we're demonstrating that it's going on with all the various kind of evidence that we have. Doug, is there anything that you want to add to that? I would say that if we go back to the prior uh, the prior era before before Goldwater and and even somewhat after after Goldwater's candidacy, uh, if you look at that uh, era of bipartisanship in Congress and at least the the willingness of various players to at the end of the day. Uh, come together and 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 hammer out compromise bills and legislation and policies for for the United States. Um, it's really hard to be on the side that says government always fails if you've just struck a deal with uh, with with the Democratic uh, uh, leader or the Democratic speaker. Um, I think the polarized era uh, helps. For the minority party, the party that's out of power at any particular time, to keep its hands clean, and um, and to say we didn't vote for that legislation, and then uh, uh, quite 
quite uh, uh, uniquely for uh, the American political experiment uh, to hope that the government fails, to hope that the country fails, to hope that the investment uh, in infrastructure or the investment in healthcare, to hope that it doesn't work. Uh, and I think that part of what polarization has 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 yielded is this idea that um, uh, no longer are uh, the United States enemies, uh, uh, you know, foreign threats. Uh, no longer uh, are they the the the, the you know. Uh, Nazi Germany or or the Soviets, uh, but now they will they will say, and we even quote uh, one Republican office holder: "The evil empire is now Washington," uh, and that is um, that's a really dangerous uh, that's a really dangerous thing, and it it creates um, obviously uh, uh, given recent events, it creates a lot of instability for the for the legitimacy of the entire. Um, governing enterprise. And um, it's one of the things that, uh, you know, um, it was, was, was disturbing about writing the book because Amy and I had to live with uh, this rhetoric and, and, and the, it's uh, the trajectory of, of these dangerous tropes uh, um, day in and day out as we were completing this. And, and having read um, Jennifer Rubin's column today, um, which seems like it's a sort of pricey of your book. Um, <laughs> it, it, it really sort of, she really is sort of digging into the radicalization of the rhetoric um, that is, and, and, and sort of behavior in the Republican party um, that is sort of building on this question, not this question, this issue of distrust. Um, and, and again, sort of who the, quote, enemy is. Um, and, and you talk about that sort of in the afterward, because in the afterward, you get to the January 6th and you get to the way that um, that sort of COVID and the, the way that the government responded to COVID came into this sort of broader umbrella of distrust. Can you talk about why you needed to write the afterward? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, we were finishing up the the manuscript altogether in the fall of 2020. And I kept saying, you know, as we were leading up to these deadlines, well, we don't know how things are going to turn out. And really what I mostly meant was the election. You know, we didn't know if Trump was going to win or not. And I, and I, you know, we wanted to therefore write some sort of afterward. At the same time, that summer, we wrote something um for a, um, a journal called Society on on Trump's, you know, like sort of like what do you expect to happen? Uh, there was a that was a theme, like what do you think is going to happen with this election or something that's going to happen? And what we said was, well, Trump has this long history of saying that, uh, you know, anytime he doesn't win an election, it was stolen, and you know, and and we think that's going to happen here. So, you know, we were kind of in a way like not sure what was going to happen except for that, that there was going to be this ramping up of, you know, of some kind of rhetoric. I mean, obviously, if he won, he wouldn't do it quite as much, although he did. There was a, you know, electoral fraud commission after 2016 that Trump Trump got started and and kind of failed uh, to move forward. So. 
when we saw what what happened um, after the election and what happened on January 6th in particular, it was really clear that we wanted to, if at all possible, to include it because it's, you know, so much of a continuation of this pattern. It's part of it, but I would, you know, I would say really an intensification of it. You know, sort of as I was saying earlier, you know, you have the normal skepticism, which is a very healthy part of being a democracy. And, you know, you can set up institutional means to check power as we do in our constitution. And we can change the relationship between the states and the national government as we have over our history and such, and what, what the federal government does and all of that. But then it became this weaponized distrust and then really turns into this, you know, very uh, intense and frightening strain, dangerous strain of delegitimization. Um, and so we wanted to include that. And of course, you know, you know, and I mentioned before the sort of the inattention to governing and, and Doug has also that you see out of this, uh, this perspective, you know, that uh, with the fight against COVID, the, you know, it really, you know, I mean, we know from lots of reporting that, um, that that Trump was not taking it seriously and really didn't even want any careful public health assessments to be presented to the general public because it would make him look bad. Um, and I, and in a way, that's something we haven't talked about before. Is the you know the the part of the Trumpification of the Republican Party is is putting himself as an individual as as coincident with the party. Uh, as a whole. Um, so if it's not good for Trump himself, then it's, you know, in, in his own thinking, then it's, it's not a, you know, you don't want to pursue certain kinds of, you don't want to pursue certain kinds of policies. Not that they necessarily, it was an administration that had a lot of governing expertise or even believed in governing expertise. Um, um, and I'm, I feel like I'm rambling, but I would say there is a, a part here that, you know, just the, you know, being against the administrative state or Steve Bannon saying that he wants to dismantle the administrative state. Well, without an administrative state, state how do you accomplish governing? You know, if you go back to, you know, Max Weber, um, you know, over 100 years ago, you know, you need to have structures and systems in place. Um, in order to carry out state functions and to try to do it in as neutral a way possible with that, you know, relying on competent people rather than um, either charismatic leaders or, you know, people who are going to come in and just try to steal things who are corrupt. Um, and, and when you have, when you have um, a political movement that's opposed to governing and wants to dismantle the administrative state, you're going to have a lot of messes that are not going to get cleaned up. And, you know, maybe that's even too soft a way to describe a pandemic that's killed hundreds of thousands of people. But, you know, that is, that I think is an outcome of, of that, that tendency and trend in the Trump years. And I'll just add that uh, when you, when you finish a book, um, there's there's a certain feeling of relief there, and uh, as as wonderful as it is to write a book with Amy Freed, uh, uh, you're just glad it's done. And uh, I think we reopen things uh, for the afterword of the book 
in part because it was all there. Um, we had predicted in the summer that Trump was going to uh, uh, discount the legitimacy of any election that he didn't win. We actually had a paragraph in that society piece where we talked about how uh the Republican votes would be counted first. The Democrat votes would come later. And as a result, uh, it's pretty clear that Trump will say in that in that instance that everything was being rigged as the as the vote count came in uh, and in a differential way. And and then when it came to when it came to covid, you know, again, because I am naive about these things, I had hoped that perhaps uh, some of this fever would break. Some of this anti-government fever would break because it would be obvious that this is a moment. This is one of those crisis moments where it's quite clear that you need the government, and you need the information, you need the expertise, you need the direction and and coordination. And um, I think what we saw in in the fall of 2020 and uh, uh, before November, and then and then in the months after November into January 6th was the, the the culmination of this strategy and the problems inherent in um, in not believing in the government and not believing in the political process and not believing in the government that you lead as president of the United States uh, and not believing in the political process uh, that you're participating in. Um, and uh, so I think we opened it up to write that afterward because it was all there and it was really the the sort of distilled or crystallized version of everything we'd been warning about going back to Gingrich. And I just wanted to ask one last sort of side question, I guess, because um, you do you do talk ab- about Trump um, in the last part of the book, obviously. Um, and. So Trump put himself forward as a candidate originally who could fix the problems. And and in in so doing, you know, kind of said, trust me, I can fix the problem. I alone can fix it, I think is what he said at his speech in 2016. Um, And so that, that he positioned himself as the leader of a party that has been using this kind of distrust in government as a means of organizing and achieving electoral results. But then he comes in and basically says, I'm going to lead a party that distrusts government by saying, trust me. Does he do a sort of switch in terms of like, don't worry about the party, don't worry about the government, it's just all about me? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, you know, in cer- you know, in certain ways, because on the one hand, he's warning about the deep state and everyone's going to be out to get him and all that sort of thing. And and then he made lots of promises in 2016. It would be so easy to do health care reform. We can do this in a week, maybe less than a week. We're going to have infrastructure. We're going to, you know, do things on prescription drugs. And there were lots of specific things that he said he was going to do, even building the wall, which, you know, in the wasn't it was which, of course, was going to get funded by Mexico. So, you know, he was, um, you know, he was part of that message, though, was that the other people haven't done these very easy things that he could easily do without any experience in government because they were all corrupt. Right. And that it somehow was going to be something that he could pull off very, very easily um, as because he has a good brain and he's a smart person um, and he'd be able to do all of that. 
but um you know of course he he couldn't he didn't he didn't know how and he got he got frustrated i mean you know at least according to all kinds of reporting he there was probably an infrastructure deal that he could have gotten but he wanted he wanted other things in terms of not you know really um you know, uh, enabling people to understand things that were going on in the administration in other ways. But I mean, I think that was part of his pitch. It was a distrust government. It was a distrust government, but I'm going to do things for you. But the really distrustful part was the other people haven't done this because they're all bad and they're all evil and they'll all, they're all corrupt. And it takes and the outsider of outsiders to come in and do this sort of thing. Um, and so all government elites are bad. Anyone who knows, you know, how to how to make the trains run on time is is is, you know, or or maybe did a decent job of it in the past. Maybe not. <laughs> but they don't they really didn't they didn't really have your interests at in at heart. Um, and the other big switcheroo, of course, which would be something we haven't really talked about, the institutional part is that he go that you have the Republican Party at least maybe not to some extent Trump but certainly the Republican Party saying you know they don't like a very strong president criticizing Obama for that uh going after you know czars and recess appointments and 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 such and then um embracing Trump completely as a strong president. Yeah, that's one of the things that we noted throughout the book, which was um, part of part of what convinces us that this is a strategy much more than an ideological commitment to be against government is the fact that the Republicans are quite willing to embrace the Congress and, and its powers when they control Congress and then to abandon and criticize Congress when they don't control Congress, just as Amy indicated uh, they will embrace a strong presidency when the president is a Republican, is a conservative, but talk about the presidency being this sort of this sort of creeping dictatorship if it's Franklin Roosevelt or Barack Obama. Um, and uh, that kind of situational constitutionalism is just further evidence that um, that the rhetoric is the anti-government rhetoric is the strategy much more than it is revealing some sort of longstanding principle or, or commitment. Um, and I, I think that uh, Amy's absolutely right. And I was glad she mentioned uh, healthcare. Trump would say as a candidate that we're going to do healthcare uh, uh, or we're going to do infrastructure as if doing is, um, is just this, this very clear means and act that can be, that can be accomplished but by the time candidate Trump is uh, being sworn in and gives his inaugural speech, it's no longer about I alone can fix it. It's about American carnage. Uh, and that that view of um, of America falling back and um, and America being fundamentally fundamentally broken uh, becomes part of part of the, the Trumpist rhetoric once he's in office. And that seems to follow the course of the book in terms of the use of this rhetoric as an organizational end, as um, a policy sort of mechanism um, to, and again, as you talk about it in terms of putting this 
political coalition together and sustaining it, um, the one thread that goes through it, um, and also managing that that inter intra party um, sort of fissures that sort of keep it all all together. Um, so um, what what happy news we have now? Um, what, what is it that the two of you might be working on now? Well, I, I'm talking with some folks about doing some work on New England politics because there's really not that that much that uh, you know been studied as a as a region. I, but I certainly do also want to return to this this project in some way and expand it in some way. Um, we have a really what I think great chapter and chapter seven at the end there uh, before the afterward when we have to deal with the. Uh, insurrection and such, where where we lay out some ideas of ways to counter this, you know, to focus on the same four things, the elections, the institutions, the organizations, and policy. And uh, I I haven't uh, gotten deep to work on it, but I I really am intrigued by trying to, to do some more work to write about that and maybe do some interviews with people who are involved in various projects relating to all of those. Yeah, I would say that sadly, this strategy is not going away. Um, so uh, I, I would I would love as as uh, somebody who loves American national politics for our book to become quickly irrelevant and uh, a nice document of of a bad era. But I I I do believe that we are going to continue to see um, this strategy unfold, and I'm sure that uh, in one way or another, Amy and I will. Uh, we'll revisit it um, because we'll have to. Well, I'm hoping that maybe there'll be a much more uplifting book that comes next. But unfortunately, <laughs> I, I I think I'm I'm with the two of you in terms of understanding how this is also leading to the sort of perilousness of democracy in the United States, um, and and the divisions that that are being sowed in this weaponization of distrust. Um, so I hope you'll come back and talk to me with another publication, um, be it uplifting or depressing. <laughs> and I want to thank Amy Freed and Doug Harris for joining me today to talk about At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponized Distrust from Goldwater to Trump, published by Columbia University Press in 2021. I assume one can purchase this at the Columbia University Press website. Is there perhaps a brick and mortar store with an online presence that you would like to give a shout out to? Well, in my little town of Bangor, Maine, <laughs> I don't know how many people, uh, you know, find their way there, maybe in the summer if they're going to Bar Harbor or going climbing in northern Maine, but the Briar Patch Bookstore carries it. Um, I know that. And I know uh, Doug has had some sightings of it in, in uh, some some bookstores in his region. I, I was happy to uh, pull a copy off the shelf at the uh, the uh, Baltimore Barnes and Noble, um, but I was also happened to be on the uh, Harvard Bookstore uh, website today and, and noticed it there. So if you're in Cambridge, Mass, you can go find At War With Government there. All right. So we will support independent booksellers here and there. And I appreciate you joining me today, Doug and Amy. Well, thanks so Thank much you. for having us, Lily. My pleasure.